Welcome fellow travelers. Hey, this is Monty and I am so glad that you are here hanging with me today as we enter into episode number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine. Episode number nine of my podcast. Hey, we're going to be digging into a really important topic about how do you how do you really find and stay in the present moment so that you experience everything that God would have for you to experience. We tend to miss it so much. So um, our conversation today is going to be about divided-itis, Zoe, and how to take the monastery with you. So hey, buckle up and hold on and we will get to it in just a moment. Oh yeah, isn't that groove just so good? I love that. All right, welcome back. Divided-itis, Zoe, and taking the monastery with you. This is a really important conversation. Have you ever noticed how just throughout your day that there are parts of you that are mentally or metaphysically, if you want to look at it that way, somewhere else. Your your body might be at work or maybe it's in the drive-through, maybe it's doing the laundry, maybe it's hanging with the kids, maybe you're out on a bike ride, but your your body might be in one place physically that we can GPS tag, Google can find you at, or if someone low-jacked your bicycle, they will notice you. <laughs> but uh, you notice in your mind, your mind can be dwelling in a number of other places, places that are presently here, or places in the future, places really even in the past. I mean, there can be like some some of you that's super focused on on the moment. You're here. You're you're connected to it. You're engaging in it. But then all of a sudden, you are thrown backwards twenty years to that that thing, that event, that person, maybe that 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 circumstance where you got wounded, you got hurt, and something reminded you of that. Maybe it was a song, maybe it was a smell, maybe it was the 67 Cougar that drove by and you, and it just catapulted you back to a different space and time. But part of you, you catching me, part of you was there in your mind. And then maybe even at the same time, while part of you is back there in, uh, with your 1967 Cougar and your, your high school days showing off, but maybe it's in the future because you have this gnawing hole in your soul. There's this fear that you don't know what's coming next. You don't know what's around the corner. Maybe, maybe you've just come out of a really hard season financially or relationally. You're feeling alone and you're, you're just feeling super unsure. So there's this fear of the future. And so even though it hasn't happened, there's a part of you that's there. Or then maybe there's a part of you that's still engaged with that really hard conversation that happened over lunch. You just, you just bumped into a coworker, you started talking, and then something came up. And it was triggered you, and you said something maybe you shouldn't have said. Maybe then they escalated it, and and before you knew it, man, everything inside of you was just feeling dark and and chaotic, and just kind of swirling around in this emotional mess. And the wild thing is, 
all of those things can be going on inside of us at the same time. So it's really hard to get all of you here in the present moment to experience life to its fullest. There is a, a, a Buddhist monk named uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and uh, I love, he has some sayings that are just so true. And one thing that he had said that I had written down was, uh, he said, the most precious gift we can offer others is our presence. Catch The most precious gift we can offer others is our presence. When mindfulness embraces those we love, they will bloom like flowers. And that is so good. The most precious gift that we can give anyone else in our life is, is that we're actually present with them. So when we practice mindfulness and we're present with other people, when those two things happen, he's saying, and, and they come together with the people that we love, they begin to bloom. I've noticed that so much even in my own life. When, when people offer me their presence, not their, not their criticisms, their judgments, <laughs> or their critiques. I mean, those are all good too, but have you been with someone and they just offered you their presence? Just a, a grace-filled sliver of a God moment that you knew everyone was all here at the same time. Man, that is such, oh, it's such a gift. Well, I coined this term, I believe, you can fact check me on this, but I call it divided-itis, and that's the, the reality, that uh, that our life tends to move in a way that we categorize or label or quantify or box, but we create these divisions, we divide things in our lives into these little compartments or containers. And what we're doing is we're creating divisions that are, um, you name it, right? We can create divisions based on gender, uh, economics, how much you make, race, what tribe are you from, what you believe, even what you don't believe, uh, your political ideology, body image, where you live. Uh, we divide the globe, <laughs> the, this amazing, beautiful gift that God created. We divide it with these imaginary lines that we put on the maps of ownership. We divide the past, we divide the present, we divide the future uh, into all these segments of time. We even create a division in our soul thinking that our faith, our emotions, and that our physical nature or our physicality aren't actually all interconnected. I think that's one of the, the biggest misses that we get in life. God desi designed us uh, to holistically embrace every element of life. He gave us the gift of life. He delights when we live and embrace it in its totality, not in its compartments, if you're following me. But, you know, we just tend to live our life like a big old pizza, right? All of these slices, we put labels on all the slices, and we tend to live only in one slice at a time, not realizing that that slice has been affected by all of the others, right? So there's this word, and it's a, 
I love this word. It's, I don't know about you, but I just love words. Sometimes, you know, and I'm looking in different languages and even within our own language, but there are just words I go, oh, that is such, that is such a good word. Well, there's this one Greek word and it's zoe. So, you know, say that, uh, say that with me, zo, zoe. And uh, zoe in the Greek, it means life, but it's, it's not just life. It's like this life that has dis- experienced a divine infusion that is both creative and sustaining. So it is life upon life. It's life infused with meaning, life infused with divine presence. I, I believe that God desires that every single breath that we take, uh, he would long for those breaths to be infused with his zoe. Uh, but we tend to miss that, the fullness of what that means, when we divide and put all of our life into these little compartments in our souls. So, I, you know, spirituality, I mean, think about it with me. Spirituality is really this process of God helping reintegrate pulling together into a wholeness all of the wayward factions of our soul. I think the harder part on that is, well, it's okay if God pulls together the good parts of my soul, the good things I've done. This is where I'm nailing it. This is where I'm on my A game. But that's really not what we're talking about with Zoe life. We're, we're talking about trusting God to bring together all of the parts of our life, good and bad. Uh, that's when we start to live a life that's God-breathed, God-infused, God-saturated, uh, God-aware. And I really think that's what Zoe is all about. Uh, we come across that word in the story about Jesus that was written by one of his apostles whose name was John. And, and John has this uh, line, and he says, uh, that Jesus told them that I have come that you might have Zoe life. And I want you to have Zoe in abundance. And I want it to be an abundance of my own life-giving energy. That's really what he's he's saying. I've came that you would have life and you'd have it abundantly. But what he's really saying is I want you to have this divinely infused life that is really overflowing with God's own life-giving energy, His Spirit at work in us. I don't know, somehow that, I think we get lost in the weeds when we, we look at what is abundance, because we even label the things that we qualify as abundance, and then they get divided. I also think somewhere along the line, we began to think that we were the creators of Zoe, so we determined that if we're going to experience a really full life, then we needed to create our own preferred reality. So what do we do? Uh, we start to create goals. We'll create health goals. We're going to lose weight. We're going to get in shape. We're going to join that CrossFit gym. We're going to eat better, right? So we have these health goals. Uh, then we create spiritual goals. We try to create morning rhythms, maybe three rhythms a day, maybe one a day. But we, we say, oh, I, need a, I need a spiritual growth plan. And then we also sometimes, even although less than the other two, we try to create these emotional goals 
growth plans. It's like, I'm going to start working on the areas of my of my life that I am not relating with other people well. So we really start to to look at emotional or relational growth goals. And then, then, then all these things, all these goals. You know, the kicker is that we keep all these goals isolated and separate from each other as if they weren't divinely linked or integrated. I would think of all the people on the planet Christians should understand and practice unity over separation because God is this unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, when you do the math, if you think of it in terms of addition, it doesn't make sense. One plus one plus one equals three. But if you think of it in terms of unity and multiplication, uh, one times one times one is still one. So God is three, yet one. There's no division in that unity, yet there is a distinction, right? There's a, a distinction, but not a division. And God has really even created us as a trinity in, in our humanity of interconnectivity of body, soul, and spirit. Because whatever is happening in any of these areas of my life, affects the others. And when you really start to grow and when I mean when the fire kicks in and you're like you're like putting the pedal to the metal and you're feeling God moving you and you're starting to grow that's that happens when all of the areas of me body soul and spirit are actually addressed. When we do that we start to find ourselves living in that present moment and then guess what we are this amazing blessing and the people around us bloom <laughs> like flowers. All right, so here's here's the rub on that. So if we live if we live in this divided state and and we categorize all these areas of our lives and we don't ever let them touch each other, like I don't know about you, there are some people when like when their dinner comes, do you know do you know them? Their food they don't allow their food to touch. It's like the 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 peas can't touch the potatoes, can't touch the salad, can't touch the chicken. Right? It's like everything has their compartments. Kind of think about it that way. Then there are the people that. Man, they let it all go. It's more of a stew, you know, by the end of that meal. Now, while I tend to like, you know, divisions there, the reality is when we when we start to create all of these subcategories, we mistakenly birth uh, into our life an understanding, maybe even a subconscious belief that there is a division between the secular and are you ready? the sacred. That we think there's these two categories of secular and sacred. So now we even apply those labels to the various areas of our lives. And then we start to think that our emotional health is separate from our spiritual health. And both of those are separate from our physical health. But you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Connections are obvious. You know, you take a Take someone whose life is just like rowing merrily, merrily, merrily down the stream, right? Everything seems to be working well. Great marriage. Uh, they're involved in, in social work. Uh, they, are, they get the promotion at work. Their kids are a source of joy and never pain. And then the same person receives the call. 
When we live a divided life, all it takes is one phone call fertile with news that we don't want to hear, right, to turn our world upside down. And we pick up the phone. Hello? Hey, can I speak, you know, can I speak to Mary, please? Yeah, this is Mary. Hey, Mary, this is Dr. McIntyre. I need to go over your test results with you. Following is just a long silence, right? Mary hears that she has a disease that requires some serious and long-term medical procedures. The outlook isn't good, but they hope it'll add a few more years to her life if all goes well. Man, that hits her. Uh, the news just hits her like a like a freight train. This diseases are attacking her body quickly. She starts. Uh, she begins to. Try to conquer her faith and her emotional stability. She yells at God, how could you let this happen? Are you even real? At first, she stays connected to her friends. Uh, but as the struggle continues and her view of God shifts, her anger rises and she slowly removes herself from her friends. She removes herself from church. Prayers become painful as she's trying to reconcile her belief in a God who heals so many people in the Bible, even with her current issue. Uh, but it seems that God isn't healing her, speaking to her. It seems like God has forgotten her. So this physical disease is hurting her physical body. It's hurting her relationships. It's hurting her faith. As Mary's body begins breaking down as a result, her former sense of self-confidence gets shattered. Her hair begins to fall out. Her skin loses its former vibrant luster. Emotions take a, a serious hit. Depression makes an unannounced visit. Man, she used to hold it all together so well. Or at least she thought she did, right? Man, maybe you were like Mary previously, man. She could juggle the leadership tasks of multiple teams at work, two weekly soccer games, a teaching a Bible study, and guess what? She still found time to exercise. Man, she felt alive and emotionally intact, and now she, she can't go for more than 10 minutes before the overwhelming reality of her life catches up, and it just feels like this heavy, heavy wet blanket drowning her soul. And that's when the tears come. She's beginning to see that holding it in wasn't the healthiest thing to do, but at least she felt more in control, right? Man, the disease has now sabotaged her emotional stability as well. Super book out there um, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by uh, Pete Scazzaro. He notes this in his book. He says, Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly to you, to yourself, your relationship with God, and to all the people around you. Man, Peter here, he is reconnecting in the right way all these dots that we have been dividing up for too, too long. So this uh, divided life, this compartmental life, uh, man, it determines that some of our life is secular then, some of our life is sacred. Um, in other words, some of our life, 
some of some of our life means that God doesn't deal with this part, but other parts are sacred, meaning God God does deal with that. And that's just not the case. There's no nuance, no no thing you experience in life that isn't sacred because God is in you and you belong to him. So as we experience more and more the integration and seeing that everything is a holy adventure, sacred moments begin to help us see that everything in life and in our createdness is connected to God. There just aren't any divisions. And, you know, when we begin reclaiming our divided selves, when we realize and acknowledge the creative truth that every moment we have is a sacred moment, that's when life starts to happen. Man, if you're a barista uh, and you are churning out a half-calf double white mocha, that moment is sacred because God is. Most people believe the sacred moments happen when you go to church, pray, go to the seminar, spend time in a holy place like a monastery. And to be, let's be honest, there are some places, have you been there? There are some sacred spaces and sacred places that, I don't know, for whatever reason, when you're there, it seems like uh, the veil is very thin between our reality and God's reality, between our world and, and His world. We call those in the Celtic tradition these thin spaces. I've been to many, many thin spaces in my life. Some of them surprised me because of where they were. Uh, some of them I expected. Um, when we're in those spaces, sometimes we're more God-aware, and I think that might actually help us to a sense that the space is thin. But the truth is, you don't have to go somewhere to experience a sacred moment. It's about experiencing a someone. That's a divine encounter with God. And then when you realize that God dwells within you, every place you go is holy. There's this... Um, other story that that apostle named John, that follower, one of the first followers of Jesus, he had this conversation. She had this divided-itis view of life. <laughs> she thought God was only found in sacred places. Well, if God is only found in sacred places, then the only time you would ever experience a holy or sacred moment then, right, is, is when you were in that place. But Jesus, he had a different take. And uh, John writes this, that Jesus went through Samaria, and he came to this town, and it was called Sychar. And that's a, isn't that a cool name for a town? Sychar. It sounds like this out-of-the-way place that's somewhere on a, a two-lane highway that has, like, one stoplight and maybe a gas station <laughs> and, and, and a coffee house. That's about it. So he comes to this town called Sychar. And he's near this plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Well, those are two really important names. Uh, back in the Hebrew in the Hebrew scriptures, um, Jacob is one of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel as we have the birth of, of a nation. Well, Jacob... His well was there. And Jesus stops at this well from this long journey. He sits down, and it was at 
the, it, was, it was right around the hottest time of the day. While he's sitting there, this woman from Samaria comes to draw water, and Jesus says to her, Hey, will you give me a drink? He asks because he was alone. His disciples had gone into town. And this woman responds with this divisional, with this divisional understanding. She says, Hey, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John John says there's these uh, there is these parentheses in the text. It's like the John saying, and by the way, G- the Jews don't associate with Samaritans. <laughs> it's so good. It's like okay, there's certain groups of people that Jews just don't associate with. And guess what? She was in one of those groups, and they're called the Samaritans. Now, that might give you like a hyperlink to other stories in the New Testament, like the good Samaritan, right? And so, we think of the good Samaritan as really today, it's become a cultural term for someone who does good. But if you think about the way the Bible is written uh, that we have here, Jews don't associate with Samaritans, yet Jesus tells this other story about a, a hero, and who's the hero in his story? Uh, it's the person that all of the Jewish people had divided out of their lives to, as having no potential to ever be good. Well, this woman, in this conversation, Jesus is having, and this is so good, she's a Samaritan. She says, hey, don't you, don't you know there are divisions one, there's a division because I'm a Samaritan, but there's going to be another division too. There's a division because she's a woman. And Jesus, as a male Jewish rabbi, shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan. Really, he shouldn't be talking to a woman. So division surrounds the conversation. It's at noon. The heat of the sun causes all of the other women of the village to stay inside when it's cooler, but she goes out at noon. So what's... What's maybe another division that's happening here, right? Well, in John's story, she had had some either relational mistakes or at least a lot of relational pain because she has had five, five husbands. She seems to be divided or cut off from her own people, an outcast, unwelcome. So she goes to draw water when there would be no one taunting, mocking, you know, whispering about this woman who has had five partners. Now, if one thing, you know, that we miss in this text, too, not to, <laughs> look, I'm already taking us on another rabbit trail. This is so good, though. Now, in that culture, when uh, many, many girls were married young, because uh, they didn't really have an option uh, on who they married. Love was not the driving force of marriages. It was generally a deal that was struck between men to purchase a girl and very often a very young girl to an old man. So that meant most of those young brides could expect that their husband would, would die. Many traditions then would go, then a brother would take the responsibility of his brother's a wife should a brother die. So it wasn't uncommon for even within one family for multiple brothers to have had another brother's wife as as brothers had died. We don't really have the full story 
um, from John here, but what we do have is, for whatever reason, she has had five marriages, and Jesus notices that she's, uh, she's with someone who she currently isn't married to. But with all of these relationships, she's kind of separated from the tribe, that there's at least something wrong with you. Uh, and so they divide her out. But you know what's so good about Jesus is that he just, he just, he just speaks right over all of the divisions of the day. He just speaks through over all of the divisions even that we create today. The divisions that existed then were religious, they were political, they were social, they were economic. Uh, just like today, we have all these divisions amongst us that, that, that go to those base levels, and Jesus' words just cruise over them. His response to her divisional remark I, and I bet he had a smile. He says this. He goes, hey, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, man, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Isn't that so good? Basically, so he's going, hey, would you mind pulling some water up for me? And she's like, why in the world are you asking me for water? There are divisions that exist here. And you're crossing the line, buddy. And Jesus just lovingly, he says, man, if you had any idea who I was, you would be saying, would you get me? Would you get me a drink of water? And guess what? I'd, I'd give it to you and these springs would well up from within you. Ah, oh, so good. I got to tell you though, when we allow racism sexism, or any other ism, and there are so many isms. When we allow any ism to create divisions, we will always miss God in the moment, even when God is sitting right in front of us asking for a drink of water. Oh, this conversation continues around this theme of water, and Jesus is just stripping the divisions out of her soul. He offers her living water from a never-ending source, which is really himself. And this divinely graced woman finds herself opening up more and more. And then the conversation took on a more personal tone. And he says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. <laughs> the fact is you've had five, and the man you now have is not your husband. And what you said is true. When Jesus says this, there's a, there's a major shift in the dynamic of this conversation. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those conversations. All of a sudden, there's like this divine moment. Someone says that thing, there's this shift, and you know that God is speaking and God is really present. She notices and she her tone changes. She says, Sir. She she gives him a respecting a respectable title, Sir. Uh, you're a prophet. And was, you can see things that other people can't see. And then she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. <laughs> Well, the first wall Jesus knocks down is the racial and the sexual barrier that humanity has skillfully erected over the centuries. You need to know God does not care where you came from because he created you. You actually come from him, right? 
does not matter what color your skin is, the makeup of your genitalia. He simply loves you in a divisionless way. You know what? Then, oh, here's what I love with Jesus in this moment. Then he demolishes her other category of broken and rejected, right? Jesus tells her, go get your husband. Uh, this reveals her relational shame. Either five failed marriages or five lost marriages, as we don't know. A current living lover, right? Not the kind of lifestyle that you would think God loves. Uh, but he loves this woman. He opens the wound. Jesus opens the wound and he bathes that revelation of where she's at, all the divisions in her life. He just bathes them all with the grace of his presence. He doesn't pull out his righteous bullhorn and he doesn't start marching up and down the village, you know, with, with a street sign that is decrying and exposing her shame. It's like, this woman has been married too many times. She's going to hell, right? No. That is not the God revealed in Jesus. He remains. He stays. He embeds himself in the moment he is in it with her so good in that moment jesus is reconnecting the divisions in her soul huh. man she stammers she tries to change the conversation <laughs> she moves it towards something religious well, let's talk about worshiping right you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. Our ancestors say it's it's here and it's in a different place. It's on this it's on this mountain. Ah, uh, <laughs> man, she believes that God is separate from His creation. He he can't be contained within human walls. This is just so true. And this is something that Jesus is going to teach her. God's not on the mountain. God's not in the temple. God's not in the church. God's not in the synagogue. God's not in the mosque. Not, God's not in the temple. He's, he, he is in those places, but he, there's no place that God is not. That place, that space, that mountain, that retreat center, that river, that rock, that stream, no place is more holy than any other place and Jesus is going to teach her that because she thinks it's about place and space. He says, hey, trust me, a, a time's coming when you're going to worship God not on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. So he's saying, you, you Samaritans don't yet have the full picture of God. The Jews have the this picture of, of God, but we're missing something else. He says, with Torah, you know, salvation or the road to Zoe, life, abundant life in God, actually, it's, it flows and the conduit is from the Jewish people. But he says, but a time is coming, and he's talking about his presence in the world and what's about to happen. He says, a time is coming, and it's even here now, when the real worshipers, true worshipers, they will worship God in spirit and in truth. Not, not in space or place, but spirit and truth. And that's the kind of person that God is looking for. He longs for people to simply worship Him 
connected to each and every moment through His Spirit and are bathed in His truth. Jesus responds with that, and she, she has heard about Messiah. She knows He's coming, and she goes, man, you know, that's deep. When the Messiah comes, He'll explain all this, and that's when uh, a great, a great line, Jesus says, hey, guess what? <laughs> that's me. What a moment, right? Man, I would have loved to have been there. You know, but sacred moments are intrinsically connected to the sacred God who fills every moment and who fills every space in the universe. He's not on the hill. He's not in the church. He's not in the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, he's in those places, as I said, but he is inside of you as well when you believe. And that's the truth component, right? God unites a divided people, a divided globe with a common sacrifice that is available for anyone who desires it. When Jesus offers his life for ours, he removed all those divisions. And that there was only one possible response for the woman as she as she encounters Jesus in this moment, and that was worship. When we worship in spirit and truth, that recreates an undivided Edenic possibility where we are all connected to each other and we're sustained by Abba's grace. It's not your belief in God that makes all things, moments, and events sacred. God is why all things are sacred. If you don't believe in God, then you just won't see, feel, or experience what a divine moment can be bring you. You won't understand that a divine moment is always present. But when we believe that God is and that every breath we take, the things that we do, the words that we speak, the thoughts that we think, and every millisecond that we have is an invitation to experience God in that moment, man, that's when Zoe is created. Life is transformed and all of the blood, sweat, and tears find meaning and beauty and grace and transformation. So even right now, as we are listening, or as I'm talking and you're listening, and, 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 hopefully, and hopefully you're in a, in a good space to listen, a safe space, but r- right now, this moment is holy. It's sacred. It's the only moment you have. Two seconds ago, the past is done. It's gone. The future isn't yet. All we have is to live into the moment that we have. Oh, but let me, uh, let me tell you, the divided life strips that sacred moment. Strips it, pulls out that God-infused Zoe-giving power. Maybe for you, it has been in my past, I remember hitting some desert periods that I just, is like, things didn't seem to be clicking. Life wasn't moving in the direction that I wanted it to move, and I, I was kind of raging at God, wondering why it seemed like I had been holding up my end of, of the deal, and, and He hadn't been, and I just found myself in this desert. His voice seemed silent. I was tired, I was thirsty, and I was, you know, I was at that point, I was like, man, I just don't know. Do I throw in the towel? Do I give up on this? Was I, was I off? But you know, the more in the desert 
spaces and places of life that I just simply accepted that's where I was at, the more the presence, maybe not his voice, but the presence of God became a reality. It's like, oh, man, even the desert is sacred. The mountaintops are, we always tend to think are sacred when we have those God moments, but when it seems like God is silent and not there, guess what? I have found that even those places are holy. There's just really no place we can go, no place we can run that God isn't. I think we miss God in the moment when we're living in fear of a future, that God, God, you know, that God's just out there. I got to try to get to him. He's like, no, he's not out there somewhere. He's, he's here in the moment. Uh, so man, life is, uh, life is taking advantage and finding God in the moment. But also, we can miss the moment by getting stuck in the in the moment, and that's that's what this other story uh, about Jesus is all about. Um, if you think about it, all over the world are these holy spaces and holy places, these shrines, you know, that uh, someone had an encounter there, someone had this God moment, and then they build a church, or they build a monastery, or they build a cathedral over that place to, you know, immortalize the moment uh, forever and ever, and we can kind of get stuck in the moment. Man, people converge on these holy sites every day of the week, and some people never leave. Well, there's a story Jesus has, really his top three executives of his followers, Peter, James, and John. And he gives, and he has this lesson that he's going to teach them about getting stuck in the moment. And it's such a cool moment, though, that uh, he takes them, he led them up on a high mountain. It was just the three of them. It's it's a moment, it's it's really close to the time that he's going to go to Jerusalem and, and he'll be uh, captured, he'll be brutalized by the, the Romans, and he'll be crucified by the Romans, and, and the whole Passion Week will, will explode, which leads us to all of our interconnections in faith with Jesus today, everything that happened in that week. And right before that happens, he has this moment with Peter, James, and John on top of this high mountain. And, and we, we read that he was transfigured before them, that his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them these prophets back from the Old Testament, the prophets Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus as this is happening, Peter said to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, Rabbi is, a, is the word for teacher. He's, teacher, it's so good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. Let's, let's build three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, <laughs> right? Then this cloud comes envelops them, and a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. After the voice spoke, they looked around, and there was no one left except Jesus. As they came down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders, don't tell anyone what you had experienced until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, and they didn't even know he was going to die yet. 
So what's happening in there is sometimes we can also get so moment-oriented that we forget there is nowhere that we can go without God in our soul. Peter says, oh man, this thin space, this amazing experience, this God moment, this God-saturated place that we're at is so good. Let's like stay here, right? Let's anchor. Let's root. This is so good. God must want this for us. So we're just going to stay connected and uh, and build our homes and settle down. But Jesus is like, no, life isn't lived on the mountaintops. The moment is experienced as you move from moment to moment to moment. You take that place or that space and that experience with you as you move. Otherwise, you lose the moment. You get stuck in a moment and it becomes something of the past. So you miss it as you move forward. You know, God moments are so infused in the very fabric of life as a norm, not a, not a super norm. It's the normal life, not the super life, man. That's what God wants for us. But when my attention gets focused on me, my wants, my stuff, that's when I tend to forget that God is always previous, that life is this lived response to God's primary and previous movement. But, you know, just like Peter, James, and John, right? We can be surprised when God shows up and then we enshrine it <laughs> and we sell tickets <laughs> and then we try to market that thing. <laughs> Nah. God just invites us to invest in and to integrate in and to tether into the moment and to keep with him as the moment changes. Isn't it weird? But even in that, Peter was making the presence of God more about him than it was about God. And I think that's what we do when we enshrine those moments. And we think we have to get to that place, that conference, that speaker, um, that guru. We have to get there because we're going to get the magic. It's like, no, what we need to get to is the source of that divine beauty. And that's God himself. Jesus invited his three closest friends on this private hike up this mountain. It's Mount Tabor. It just looks like an enormous bump. <laughs> if you've ever been there, it's this enormous bump surrounded by a ton of flat real estate. Uh, these four guys definitely would have reached their target heart rate as they ascended the slope of the mountain. When they got to the top, they could look out over the entire Jezreel Valley. They could catch a glimpse of the beauty of Mount Hermon. And I imagine they were all pretty tired when they arrived at what seemed to be an average Joe location on the mountain. They, and little did they know that it would soon become a sacred portal for them. <laughs> that moment, as Jesus is transfigured, which really, when we read that word, it's like his, his physical form was morphed into something else, something other. I like how Mark describes the, that moment, that he was brilliantly white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach, right? He was dazzling, brilliant, otherworldly, in a word, transformed. 
and that those two Old Testament heavy hitters show up. Hiking trip got weird. <laughs> Moses and Elijah show up. God speaks. Man, what a powerful moment. Everything is good. But then they fell into that wormhole of God's presence. And by trying to save the moment, they miss the moment. You can also worship the moment. You know what I mean? And neither one of those are the way to experience sustained Zoe. So, you know, as God starts to bring to you the awareness of His presence in each and every moment of your life, remember that His presence goes with you anywhere. And that means every breath is sacred. Uh, you don't need to build a monument to celebrate it. Just simply live and enjoy it. Um, you know, I do this retreat every August at a monastery in Oregon, Mount Angel Abbey. And I do, uh, I do the sacred space, and we really focus on experiencing that thin space and that, that presence. But the whole point of my weekend is you don't have to come here to experience this moment and enshrine it. You can take the monastery with you because if we integrate our experiences into who we are, and into all of the areas that we are, and we start to eliminate the divisions in our soul, we take the mountaintop with us. We take the monastery with us. We take the seminar with us. Divided eye just sends us in, in, in so many directions, and we feel we need God fix a seminar, a retreat. But when we learn to find God and worship each moment, because everywhere we are is holy and sacred, now we are light bearers and God bearers everywhere that we go. And, and I think that the more we apply this truth in our lives, the less we actually need that monastery or the mountaintop experience to stay attuned with God's. Man, when we have those, those beautiful slivers of grace become a gift of the present moment. But that's it. And I think this was Jesus' intent when he said, be sure of this. I'm with you always to the very end. Ah, so good. So, you know, when we think God's not with us and that there are moments uh, when we, we walk alone without God, that recreates this divided-itis in our lives. We can, you know, we can wrongly believe that because something or some experience or the trajectory of our, our life bad things are happening or pain enters into our world that that God is either not there or he's abandoned us altogether and we sense that we're in this divineless moment right but uh, we start to ask questions we make statements uh, that really betray our our false beliefs and that bad theology uh, like God what did I do wrong hey are you are you mad at me should I be praying harder Man, do I need to pray uh, and read the Bible more? Did you give up on me? I guess, I guess I wouldn't blame you. Well, it seems like I don't matter to God. Man, God never answers my prayers. You know, while all these questions are normal, and I hear them often, there's a, you know, there's an underlying belief in them though that's not super healthy. There's an underlying belief that we think that God is either not around, mad at us when something bad happens in our life, or when circumstances you know, really aren't, aren't going according to our plan. We thought things should be going this way so smoothly, and if, 
And of course, always to be a benefit to us. But if they go the opposite way, then, you know, something is amiss. You know, I think that's the ego at its best. It starts to link our agenda and God's agenda in such a way that when our agenda doesn't happen, then our default is to think that God must be against us, gone from the scene. It's really, in effect, that kind of thinking is spiritual, really spiritual arrogance. So the sacred moment, that moment that we have, we start to lose when we think we need to become this performing monkey in order to get God's attention so that he'll answer our prayers and fix our situation. And that is just not the God of the Bible revealed through Jesus, we start to wonder, or you know, do I do I love God for what He can do for me, or do I love Him simply because He is? Will I believe He is good and He has my best interests in mind if He doesn't answer my prayers the way I want Him to? Well, if God is silent, will I revert back? to a legalistic spiritual formula of doing certain spiritual things in order to get my way or to get an answer. In essence, we're saying, am I going to go back under this heavy yoke of religion, of doing, performing, because I think God wants me to perform in order to receive His love? I got to tell you, that's the yoke that Jesus came to free us from, because that was the yoke of the Old Covenant. His yoke, he said, is light. It's not going to weigh you down or trip you up. The question then becomes, will I switch that kind of thinking, and will I actually believe that God is good? Faith in Him isn't about getting all of my prayers answered just the way I want, but rather, faith in God is the anchor that holds me even when I don't get what I want or experience pain uh, as I move day to day through this world and experience all of the nuances that I may not always long for, but they're just a part of life. So when we live into that space that we believe God is good no matter what, then we start to experience those sacred moments. We live more in the present. We're more aware. And we have just eliminated that whole division that we create between secular and sacred, good and bad. Dark light is like everything just simply is. And because we are here and God is with us, then he is transforming everything powerfully right before our eyes. And there is this one psalm. It's a psalm that every, most everyone I've ever encountered, whether they have gone to church or synagogue or anything, that everyone seems to know, and it's the 23rd Psalm. You know, the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That one, right? We've heard it at funerals. We've heard it at weddings. It's, it's that psalm that the world seems to know so well. And I think one of the reasons it is so powerful is because it contains this truth that we experience good and bad in this life, but God is always with us. And maybe if you have opportunity to read through that psalm, what I did is I kind of paraphrased it for me. So I'm going to read you the way that I reworked the words to speak to me to create these moments. 
that I can take with me everywhere. So let me read, let me read to you my version of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, and he creates spaces of rest for my soul. He refreshes and restores me without my asking as he leads me to follow him with my life. But my life is not always found resting by the quiet and tranquil streams of his creation. Sometimes I walk through situations that terrify me are filled with evil, wickedness, and darkness, times when it seems that the light of day will never come and the presence of God is an afterthought. Yet, even in these experiences, I will not fail or fall to the control of fear, thinking that God has left me, because I know that even here in these times that have come and will come again, you, O oh God, are with me. You never leave. You make every moment sacred with your presence. Sometimes when I'm living a divided life, God loves me enough to discipline me, whether it's natural consequences for my actions, fatherly intervention rooted in love, or the divine allowed will of life. The fact that you love me enough to redirect my soul fills me with joy. As I trust your goodness, your presence fills me and blesses me, even when I'm surrounded by those who don't like me and would want to do me harm. Even here, while you may not remove my enemy, you reveal that I belong to you in front of them. That's good. <laughs> because I know who you are, I also know that my life will be chased down with the twins of goodness and kindness presence and love every moment that I live. That's my take on the 23rd Psalm, reminding me no matter what I encounter, God is and he is making everything beautiful, even though in the moment it might seem rather dark. Because the truth is that every moment is filled with God. Every breath that I breathe and you breathe. As a, it's just simply a divine grace. Every count, encounter that you have today, at work, at home, on the bus, on the subway, no matter where you're at, every encounter is part of a divine narrative that you are in. And everything is pregnant with God possibilities. And this, this really starts to free me from... All the mistakes I've made in the past frees me from the fear of what I am just future tripping about. It allows me to experience that sacred present moment, which is really all that there is. Now, this, I don't know if, if you struggle with practicing those moments or finding those moments. Uh, just as we come to the end of uh, this podcast, I just wanted to give you some here are some to-dos, some ways to start building the moment into your the rhythms of your life. Uh, the first practice I tell you is this. Uh, take an inventory of where your thoughts are residing. We talked about this just a, a little earlier. But, you know, schedule an hour. If you can find an hour, sit down, grab a journal, grab a cup of coffee, find a quiet place where you, you're not going to be disturbed, and just pay attention to your soul. 
Just wait in silence. Things are going to start bubbling up. Thoughts are going to be bouncing around in your mind. And then um, in your journal, just write down all of the different places that your mind goes over that course of that hour. Now, if you're like me, that's going to be a busy hour. It, it really takes me, it takes me quite a while to really center, to focus, to bring my thoughts down. But you'll find if you just pay attention to your thoughts and note them, how many things you are thinking about all the time. And that's really keeping you from experiencing the moment because your brain is just so busy. After you write them down, maybe think of your thoughts, look at them, and, and categorize them. So which thoughts were moving in a God direction or a positive direction? Which of your thoughts were more negative, uh, taking you away from God? And which were just like neutral, something like, you know, hey, I need to get the steak for dinner <laughs> tonight. What's positive? What's negative? What's neutral? And then also now think through all of the feelings that were starting to appear and allow their, their heads to, to rise above the earth inside of you, when you think of those thoughts, what's, what does it stir in you? What do you actually feel? And then start linking feeling words to the thoughts that you have. This will begin to start, it'll give you a glimpse, really, of how your mind is scattered and in so many places. And is it taking you down a, a negative path, a, a disconnected path, or a positive path? Man, at the end of that hour, just pray. Just say, hey, God, thank you. <laughs> thank you that you're bringing all of my thoughts together so I can see them. I'm placing them now under Christ's care. I'm releasing them to him, and I'm trusting that he's going to sovereignly work in all of those. So that's just one, you know, one practice that just to pay attention, to become aware, and to put some thoughts down about your thoughts. Another thing is about how you start your day. Think about this, how we begin each day as we slowly start transitioning from that sleep state to awake, it establishes your God awareness or your moment awareness or your lack of God awareness. Uh, most People are startled awake by an alarm clock, and then their rituals begin as they launch into your day. Everyone has a ritual or their own personal liturgy. It's like, what do you do first? You know, do you go straight to the coffee, or do you go straight to the shower, or do you go straight to the bathroom? Or, but we have all of these rhythms that are, are liturgies in our lives. And so how you start your day is really going to set you up for how you experience God in the moments of your day. So here's, here's a thought. One, for just a week, change your morning ritual by allowing yourself just to have a dialogue with God while you're still in bed. Instead of the alarm goes off, feet hit the floor, and you're off and running. As you come awake, just talk to God. Invite Him. Hey, Abba, I'm just inviting you to be a part of my day today. I'm going to allow you to speak and to direct me as I move through. That, that's a beautiful way before you engage in everything. Just say, God, I want to do this day with you. And then as you transition into your day, maybe you could maybe you could start some time, just you know, just some meditation time, prayer time, doing maybe doing some 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 uh, Lexio Divina. Just allowing uh, God's 
word, uh, poetry, good writings, just to ruminate in your soul. And just by doing that, pay attention to how your awareness of the sacredness of life just starts to increase as you begin your day focused this way. I would also just say, just honestly, I know the way you end the day also sets you up for how sets you up for how you begin the next day. So if you go to sleep stressed and worrying about all the stuff and tasks that you need to get done, you will you're going to generally wake up with all of those things just waiting for you as soon as your eyes open, or they're assailing you all night, keeping you from actually sleeping. So a really great practice before you go to bed is to spend time just debriefing your day with God in your mind, uh, thanking Him for His presence throughout the day. It's like, man, I noticed you here. You, I felt you here. And, uh, and maybe you're also noticing, you know, I, I felt distant or disconnected from you in these spaces and places. At that point, man, leave your to-do list in the hands of the God who created the world. Put your files in His hands. And ask him to just to just to sing over you and to speak to you as you drift off into sleep. A morning and a night practice really help us uh, stay focused uh, during the day. The last one is something Americans don't do, but I mean, this is really important, and that's focus on your breathing and actually breathe correctly throughout your day. You know, it's such a cool image that. The book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, shows us that life started for us in humanity. It started when God breathed his spirit into us. That breath is still sustaining us, and we rarely think about our breathing. But there is a natural rhythm in the act of breathing. It just reminds us of our createdness. It reminds us of our need for God. Without breath, you don't have life. Without God, you don't have life. God inserts his breath into us. You know, it's, it's interesting that when you come into this world as a baby, the first thing the doctors do after, you know, that little spank on the behind is to get you to breathe air, right? Because, because we've been submerged in that amniotic fluid. And so our first act as a human being is to breathe. Also, when we transition from this life into the next, the last act that we do is breathe out. Breath is a picture of life. In the Bible, breath is also a picture of God's Holy Spirit, who is the life giver in our soul. So without breath, we have no life. Without God, we have no breath. So even where you're at right now, just slowly breathe in. Fill your lungs to capacity. Hold the breath and count to four and ask God to flood you with his life, his mercy and grace. And as you exhale, you know, just count to seven on that exhale as you, as you breathe out and just release to God the anxiety that you feel because of trying to control all the people, all the things, and all the circumstances in life, right? So let your breathing anchor you to your present moment. And let the God of your present moment speak to you. I, I bet you just might see a huge increase 
and the number of divine appointments and God moments and soul nudges that will transpire throughout your day. So breathe in, hold it, and then just breathe it out. Start to practice that, filling your lungs. Your body needs the oxygen. And as I mentioned, most of us Americans, we have these shallow breaths just to get us through. And so your body's not getting what it needs. And as you breathe deep, just think about the gift of life that God has given you and to become thankful for that moment. And as you breathe out, you just might see God at work in a more powerful way. All right? Well, so... I think we're going to end her there for this episode of uh, the podcast. Hey, just a couple reminders for all of you. One, keep tuning in. Hey, would you would you put the like on the podcast on uh, Podbean as well as on my website? Give me some likes because that spreads us out even farther to talk about the things that really matter most. Also, don't forget you can go to my blog, which is Monty Wright. Com, M-O-N-T-Y-W-R-I-G-H-T.com. You can also find me on Facebook, uh, MC Wright. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, at MC Wright. And on Instagram, at MC Wright. So I would love to engage with you. And I would also love to hear from you on what are some of the topics and who are some of the people that you would love to hear interviewed and interacted with on the podcast. And if you have questions that you would love to have me answer or deal with on the podcast, shoot those in on any of those, uh, through any of those forums. All right. Well, hey, you guys have an amazing week and I will see you on the next episode of the Monty Wright Podcast.